Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Once upon a time, there was a guy. See, that guy enjoyed yelling into the internet after reading nonfiction books. But at the same time, that guy found himself in the middle of a three-way strategic inflection point, working at a giant company in an old-school business model who was shifting its entire focus towards technology. Working in said technology group at the time that the market demand is a tidal wave of death and destruction of AI, business intelligence, and gigantic ERP systems. And finally, after 10 years of being an idiot, this little fella found himself at a strategic inflection point known as he's actually doing a good job in making helly sales having massive sales success let's fucking go and that guy my priest is me and see when i started this podcast i obviously accepted the ancient ideals of bushido i accepted death i assumed i was already fired and i waded confidently into the void my mildly depraved book review podcast grew a life of its own and i found myself diving deep into this massively nuanced soft skill of explaining these like arcane and boring books in fucked up long form storytelling version and like anything anything worth doing is worth overdoing it and i have been overdoing this for fucking three years however this shit was taking me so much time almost an entire month from start to finish diving deeper into books than any human has a right to and coming back with pure fucking gold doing my podcast for a large part of the weekend days and then like no joke 6 30 a.m to 7 30 a.m during the work days all the while my day job is reenacting the civil war and i've been murking so many goddamn union boys and my next year i've committed i'm going into the sales hyperbolic time chamber I'm going to read 30 sales books. I've already read so many. I'm going to download the 10 to 15 of those that are life-changing into my fucking soul. And I'm going to become the best salesperson that ever lived. Both a strategic and tactical understanding of sales. And I've accepted death again. And I actually mentally decided to cancel my podcast. Out in the deer blind, no success crying out to the ether that why can't my life be easier i realized dude you idiot you gotta cancel this shit you you gotta have this last episode that strategic selling using psychology to sell better or whatever dude i don't even remember the fucking titles of those sales books but that was the last one i thought and so i i was like okay that's what it's gonna be and as i prepare for this as i am recording this I don't have any episodes in the hopper where I usually would have two or three already batched far ahead of time. And I relaxed. I, I had I had, had like three weeks. It's like Nassim Taleb. He retired for like two weeks. I had like three weeks of not doing the podcast. And I took a breath of relaxation. Ah, no more crushing schedule of the podcast. I'm going to take a break. Ah, this will be great. And how did I take a break, you might ask? Well... By reading the world's most famous book on process improvement in manufacturing and taking notes on it like it was a course. And then I was like, hey, idiot, nobody fucking cares about your podcast already. Plus, I released this one ninja episode and the author was kind enough to repost it on his YouTube channel and I horrified thousands of Japanese ninja scholars. Dude, I'm years and years away. From being an overnight success so i wonder if there's any way i can get the benefits of the podcast burning these books into my soul continuing 
to become a master storyteller and mastering my upcoming goal of being the best salesperson that ever lived without completely canceling the podcast. It's like the choice isn't two-a-day football lifting or none. Why don't I lift three days a week, idiot? And so, in the spirit of long-dead Vilfredo Pareto, I'm reborn. And to you listeners, my priest, there's probably no goddamn change to you because I'm still obsessive and this will be, like, released around the normal schedule. However, going into 2024, I'm going to abandon all structure. No longer spending a month on an episode. I'm going to record whatever I fucking want. One episode next year is going to be an episode breaking down how fake psychics do cold reading. And I might do that for like half an hour. Might not even have an introduction. Who cares? I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to shut down my website because, dude, 25 bucks a month, that's like 400 rounds of 22. I'm not even going to promote this shit. And I'll likely cover mostly sales books. But as I was accepting myself for quitting this. And I realized it's okay, little buddy. It's okay. I looked down. And I saw that that gorilla in my pants is not quite dead. And I'm reborn in the image of Dave Sandler's son. Here we go. And so, in the spirit of abandoning all structure and pretense, where are we? What are we going to talk about? Well, I was no joke drifting in and out of sleep last night, ruminating on this book I just finished, The Goal, the most famous manufacturing process improvement book ever written, a book that outlined the theory of constraints. And after two separate failed attempts with two different people where I tried to explain the main ideas to them, and they were like honestly trying their best to understand, and I was like, I'm an idiot. I don't even understand the main ideas of this fucking book like i read it and i thought it was pretty cool and i know what to do but i can't explain why and i was like hey buddy insert goddamn podcast time i'm gonna journey into this book i'm gonna pull out the five percent that gives us 70 percent of the benefit then i'm gonna hang up the goddamn phone and feel free to tune in whenever the fuck you want to the goal by eli gold rat now gold rat i mean what a name You know, some people have nicknames like the hammer, the nail, the pit bull, but the golden rat. Hmm, Okay, I'm I'm fucking interested. So this book, The Goal, is weird. It's written in novel form, and I actually typically hate business books written in novel form. I've read a couple. The Go-Giver is the only one actually that that, I don't hate. But Patrick Lencioni, he writes all these and it's like a parable, and it sucks. And so I was very skeptical, as always, going into this book. But I realized that by being in novel form, it was just like easier to remember, and so I accepted it. And it's about a plant manager, Alex Rogo, in a failing plant, and so like a manufacturing plant. So imagine 300 of your best friends and you, some people on leadership roles, some people just turn and wrenches, all working on the manufacturing shop floor. And his plant is failing. He has three months and then he's getting fired. And so he's just like so fucking sad and his wife hates him. And then he meets this mysterious process improvement guru named Jonah. Jonah loves fucking cigars and just hammers knowledge into Alex's brain. And in the course of this book, Alex, a fictional character that I've come to know, like, and trust, almost gets fired and divorced. He rarely even gets it in with his wife, Julie. At one point, she even moves out of the house. He goes from that to figuring it out, to saving his plant, to getting promoted. I might be adding this, but Mr. Golden Rat, he alluded so hard that Alex now is busting all kinds of nuts deep inside them sweet, sweet sugar walls as the world famous Nutrition coaches and comedians, the Hodge twins, have been known to say. And that, my praise, is what we are in for today. This is the spark notes of the spark notes. My life is on fire with sales activities, but I refuse to let this spark go out. I lean further into the 80-20 principle and we ride the night again into the book. So, the book starts off with Alex, the plant manager, being greeted bright and early by his boss, Bill Peach. Now, Peach, 
Peach is pissed. They have a late customer order and it's super important. So imagine your biggest customer is like, Peach, if you don't get this order done by the end of the day, I'm going to cancel. Peach yells at everybody. God damn it, get this through. Alex and his team pull off a Herculean effort extending late into the night. He misses a date with his fucking wife who is sad about it, but also like resigned to her fate that she's going to get a divorce. But they pull it off. He drinks with a co-worker until the early hours of the morning to celebrate. Hell yeah. They even have these cool new robots that make things more efficient, he thinks. We're kind of figuring it out. But as Alex is drifting off to hazy sleep that night, he thinks, yeah, we had a fire. Yes, we collected everybody in the town. We all hydrated as much as we could and we pissed all over this fire and we did put it out with our dicks. But bro, we can't be the fire department if we keep doing it like this. There's got to be a better way. And as he falls asleep, because he's got the spins and he's wasted, he thinks, I need to figure out what to do. In the morning, hazy, hungover, still in his suit, he goes to work. His boss, Bill Peach, gets fucking pissed at him again. He calls him in and he basically is like, hey bitch, we're going to shut down this plant in three months if you can't pull it off. Get out of my sight. Alex is sad. There's some big strategic offsite which like everybody has to go to. And Alex is like, you know what, dude? I'm going to be fired in three months. I'm not going to your bullshit meeting. And he dips out. He skips it. He goes driving in the mountains. I think he's in California. I don't fucking know. And he reaches into his pocket and he finds a cigar. Now that cigar happened to come from our boy Jonah. And Alex is just like... What the fuck, dude? Who cares? I'm going to die anyways, get divorced, and have to settle for a bunch of fat, desperate fours. I might as well do tobacco on company time. And he lights up the cigar. But as he's smoking it, his thoughts drift back to Jonah. See, Jonah was his former physics teacher, and he just happened to meet Jonah in an airport lounge years later. He's sitting there. He's in the Delta Sky Miles thing having persistent panic attacks but like breathing through it he looks over and he sees what the that's jonah my teacher and since this book was written back in the day before there were laws jonah was of course smoking a fat stogie and now alex walked over to jonah and was like hey jonah and jonah's like who are you and alex is like i'm alex i was your student he's like oh yeah great to see you what are you up to and alex is like well I'm actually here to talk about our cool new robots. We got them installed in this manufacturing plant and everybody's excited. And Jonah kind of looks up, <laughs> sniffs the air like he smells a pussy, and he's like, bitch, those robots are stupid. And he's like, what do you mean? Jonah's like, maybe they're fine, but what are you talking about? Have you gotten more profitable? Have you laid off more people? What have you done different? And Alex is like, dude, I, uh, I'm over here trying not to have a panic attack in the delta sky miles lounge and you're sniffing my crotch but now that you bring it up yeah we got these super cool robots we've not become more profitable we haven't laid off anybody we've actually just like produced a lot of stuff with the robots in the middle of our production line and like i think we just have a bunch of excess inventory but but alex can't wrap his head around it yet he's still just like but shut up, Jonah. These are efficient. Jonah laughs in his face and is basically like, whatever, dude. Let me ask you a question. I'm rich, I'm late, and I'm smoking a cigar in the Delta, in the Delta Sky Miles Lounge. I'm going to give you a piece of wisdom, okay? Reaches into his pants and he, he pulls out nothing, but he says, Alex, what is the goal of your plant? Alex is just like looking at him like he just encountered fucking Rafiki and... uh Jonah departs for his flight, turns around, and like a king giving a dog a scrap of meat, he tosses Alex a cigar and disappears. So Alex is thinking back to that, and he's like, bitch, I'm gonna get fired in three months. Like, you know, it's like when I had a really bad back injury, and, and my friend who thought he could do magic, I was like, hey man, you think you can do magic on my back? He's like, oh yeah, I'm in. He's over there 
take my shirt off, lay in my fucking yard. He's trying to do reiki magic on my back. Didn't feel like anything except for like vaguely homoerotic, but um, my back didn't get better. And then my wife had to like do this ritual because I got possessed by a demon or something. I don't, I don't know. She wouldn't really tell me about it, but, but Alex, see, he's that desperate. And so he's smoking this cigar on company time and he just starts thinking about it. He's like, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get fired anyway. If I keep doing exactly what I've been doing, for sure. Let me think about it. What is the goal of my plan? A few days pass. He's noodling it. He doesn't know what to do. He continues to be a bad husband. Finally, he calls Jonah. He thinks he might have it figured out. Alex, it's Jonah. I got a message you'd called. Do you have an answer to my question? Alex, like a bitch, I freeze for a moment then I realize he's referring to his question what is the goal I hesitate the answer seems ludicrously simple and I'm suddenly afraid the answer must be wrong but I say Jonah the goal of a manufacturing organization is to make money and everything else we do is a means to hit that goal waiting to hear laughter on the other side he just hears like a sound like oh and he's not sure if Jonah just ejaculated but like He's pretty sure because he's heard that sound a lot. But Jonah was like, that's right. That's exactly it. You're on to the first step. Because I'm rich. I'm busy. I'm also smoking a cigar right now. I don't have a bunch of time for you. So I'm going to help you on your little quest. You proved yourself enough. You figured out the goal to make money. I'm going to give you three tools that you can use when you're out there measuring your plant. Because... All of the conventional accounting, all the, the, you know, person efficiency, what's the realization? Like, none of that works. I'm going to give you three measures, and then I'm going to hang up on you. And Alex is like, okay, I'm ready. Jonah says, measure one, throughput rate. This is the rate at which the plant generates money through sales. So I'll explain this because, dude, I don't know anything about manufacturing. So imagine you get a raw material, okay? You get a piece of steel. Let's, let's say you're gonna make a samurai sword, okay? You get a piece of steel out of the steel quarry? I don't know where steel comes from. You get a piece of steel one step after where steel comes from. And then it goes into a manufacturing plant. They fold it, they bend it, they twist it, they heat it, they hit it, and then they make it into a fucking samurai sword. How quickly you go from order, hey, I'd like a sword, to here you go, the thing that you ordered has now been manufactured, here, pay me $800 for a sword. The increase in throughput is the increase in the speed from how quickly the order came to when you gave it and related like dollar amount even. So to review again, he says, the first thing to measure, throughput rate. The rate at which the plant generates money through sales. And you're thinking like, hey, I'm the plant manager. I don't do sales. But that's throughput. Second measure, inventory. All the money the system has invested in purchasing things that it intends to sell. So in the samurai sword example, okay, you're not going to just like, like, okay, hey, I'd like to buy an $800 samurai sword from you, Troy. Like, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about that. So inventory is like your, you know, you bought, I don't know if it's the machines, but we'll just say it's the machines. You bought all the machines, you bought like a thousand pieces of steel that you've turned into samurai swords. You've got a few different units of samurai swords. And so like you've, uh, you know, made 400 that are just your inventory that you're ready to sell. So all of that, you know, whether it's inventory of, let's say there's 10 steps in making a samurai sword. Uh, let's say it's inventory of metal that's going from step five to step six. That's, I mean, that's still like your cost is tied up in that. Or even inventory, like you have a finished samurai sword that you can't sell or that you're waiting to sell. The second measure is inventory. Okay. Third measure is operational expense. All the money a system spends to turn inventory into throughput. So operational expense would be 
you know, I guess, so I guess that, that answers my question. The, the machines, I would guess, are operational expense. Um, but like people, you know, you're going to have, you have 9,000 hunks of iron. That's inventory. But how do you turn that into throughput, aka into a sold samurai sword? Well, you have to pay somebody to do the manufacturing. So he says, you can manage your whole plant with these three measures. Throughput, inventory, operational expense. And then uh, Jonah goes, well, hey there, little buddy. Uh, I got to run. Remember, I'm rich. Just remember, we aren't concerned with local optimums. And that's the way. Boom, click. And so Alex is like, God damn it. I know the hero's journey is supposed to be like, I go, I meet the teacher, I learn some stuff, I come back, I pull it off. But he's like, could you just like be more helpful, Jonah? But deep, deep in his plums, he feels like he's onto something. He goes and he finds some people at the plant who he knows he can mold, who are open-minded, who, uh, you know, they also like work for him, so they're basically his slaves and they have to listen to him. And he says, hey, these four people, we're going to figure this out. They're going back and forth. It's sacrilegious. They realize... Hey, you know those awesome, cool robots we have? Well, imagine there's 10 steps to make a samurai sword. Well, steps 6 and steps 8 are insanely efficient, and you can you can produce so much capacity because you got these new robots. But if you just, like, run these robots in isolation, they just cause huge increases in inventory. You know, just imagine step 5, okay? Uh, 5 of 10... Let's just say it produces a billion pieces of iron an hour. Okay, a billion with a B. And then every other machine does a thousand. So how many hours is that going to take where you're running that thing at full capacity? And this is a crazy example just to illustrate, but like you're going to have so much inventory after the robot because you're producing so much, a billion with a B. And then the next one is doing a thousand. And so they look around and they're like, the goal is making money, not having a specific work center, you know, a specific 10 step process, specific step in the 10 steps be really, really efficient. Huh, it looks like with the robots, we've just, dude, we just caused a huge increase in inventory. They're onto something. They don't know what to do. Alex is late. He forgets another date with his wife. He does not get laid and has to grovel. He says, my job is on the line. My job is on the line. No sympathy from her cold blood as she looks him back in the face and says, your job always is on the line. And he is stressed. Days go by. He talks to Jonah again. And Jonah says, I'm going to give you two more ingredients in this overall system. The next is that any manufacturing process is made of dependent events. And so... Think of the samurai swords, 10 steps, each step depends on the previous. And so you cannot actually do step seven before you do step six. But what that tells us is you can't do step 10 or even step 11, get, you know, ship the sword to the customer if you haven't done step six. So he says, the next thing you need to think about is you got those three measures and all a plant is, is dependent events and statistical fluctuations. And so statistical fluctuations are obviously just chance. You know, the FedEx truck can get into an accident and it doesn't make it to the customer on time, but you do that a thousand times. That's just a statistical fluctuation. And so some parts are going to be done in four minutes. Some parts are being done in six minutes, but it averages out to five. And so he says, that's what you need to think about. The solution is inside there. Call me when you're smarter. He makes up with his wife. They're going on a date on a Saturday. He comes home. It's Saturday morning. And he realizes, God damn it. I'm supposed to take my son on a Boy Scout trip. He's like, well, I've been putting Julie, my wife, my hot minx. I've been putting her off for work. I'm sure. She will understand if I go on this Boy Scout hike. And so he does. And it's a Saturday. 
And imagine, you know, you're working this insane fucking job. You're getting home so late. Your wife is so mad at you. You also got just like a full bag inside you. You know what I'm saying? And oh, Jesus Christ. you think you're like, okay, I'm, I'm on the bubble, but I'm like definitely maintaining this marriage. You're like, we're going to do a date on Saturday. And then you wake up and you're like, wait a second. I actually have been volunteered to be in charge of a Boy Scout troop. Fine, I'll go. My wife, I'm sure she'll understand. It's a 10 mile hike. There's 20 Boy Scouts. He's over there obsessing on work. Uh, a couple of the other parents just like drop their kids off. And he looks around and he's like, you're telling me I'm the only parent in charge of these fucking kids? <sighs> Great. So he's like, okay, kids, we're going to start walking. And so the kids are all different speeds. And he's thinking about it and he's like... Hey, I'm a, I'm a genius. I work, I'm a plant manager. Plant manager. I can plan this fucking hike. How am I going to run, how am I going to run this hike? Cause he's like, well, I know I get in trouble if any of these kids die. Uh, okay. And he looks around and he's like taking a, taking account of his inventory. And he sees some athletic kids. He sees, sees some, you know, this one kid in the corner, you know, doing doing push-ups by himself. He's half Asian. His name's Jordy Long. He's, he can, then he looks over and he sees a fucking fat kid, Herbie. And the fat kid's slow. And he's like, okay, how am I going to make sure that I don't lose a kid? He's like, okay. And so he says, I'm going to be the, the line leader. And so he starts, Alex is the line leader. And they start off walking. He's walking, he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. Then he looks back. And he's like, what the fuck? Where's the fat kid? And he's like, well, you know, I wouldn't, that, I mean, of all the kids to lose, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. However, I do believe that would interfere with me saving the plant. So I better go find this kid. So he goes back and Herbie, which everybody has, and this is in the book, everybody has uh, taken to calling herpes. Uh, herpes is just so slow and fat at the back. He's like, okay, kids. Come back, everybody, everybody circle up. So he's thinking, he's like, okay, I can't be the leader because if I do, I set the pace, but I'm a jacked, strong plant manager, man. Herpes is over there like, you know, has been doing a, a, a the equivalent on his heart of like a six minute mile, but he's just walking because he's fat. He's like, okay, well, I'm too fast. Let me put a kid, Ron, in charge. Yeah, I say, hey, does anybody want to be the line leader? Ron raises his hand. And so they're like, great. And he tells Ron, he's like, hey, kid, Ron, uh, Ron or whatever your fucking name is. Uh, and Ron looks hurt, but he's listening because Alex is an adult. And Alex says, just keep following the trail and set a moderate pace. We got to be able to camp by dark. So you can picture Alex is at the back. Herbie's at the middle. Ron is at the front. Ron is fast. Herbie's fat. And all of a sudden they're going slow. So they say they start this new system. And Ron is like, you tell him, hey, Ron, just go moderate pace, walk the trail. Herbie, you know, you're, he was at the back, but you're like, hey, Herbie, I'm going to need you to pull your weight. You need to be in the middle. I'll take the back. And so Alex is in the back because he's like, okay, my biggest, my biggest rule here, I can't lose a kid. And he's like, I'll be able to watch from the back. Here we go. So they start off walking, and all of a sudden, Alex is going fucking slow. But it's even worse now, because the ten boys in front of Herbie are basically like a mile ahead. And they're going to get eaten by bears. That's a real possibility. And he's like, oh my god. Think of how inconvenient it would be for me if those kids got eaten by bears. Shit! And then, the kids behind Herbie are so pissed. They're like, they, they are joking and crawling on the ground because they can go faster than herpes. And Alex is like, fuck, dude, I'm going to lose a kid again, but in the opposite way. But his brain is going back and forth and he's thinking, and he's like, you know what? You find dependent events in any process. In order to arrive at Devil's Gulch, the trail has to be hiked. Up front, Ron has to walk the trail before the next boy can, and so on. 
the next boy has to walk the trail before Herbie. In order for me to walk the trail, the boy in front of me has to walk it first. It's a simple case of dependent events. It's like the samurai sword. You know, you you can't do step 11, sell it to the customer, if you haven't done step 6, get it really hot. And then he's thinking, he's like, okay, what about statistical fluctuations? Are those here? You know, Jonah says they must be here. I look up and I realize the boy in front of me is going a little faster than I have been. He's a few feet further ahead of me than he was a minute ago. So I take some bigger steps and I catch up with him. Then, for a second, I'm too close to him. So I slow down. There. If I had been measuring my stride, I'd have recorded statistical fluctuations. So, okay, so he's explaining this and like all of this is Mr. Golden Red. Just like being so goddamn clever and imbuing these pretty fucking complicated principles inside this novel, but he actually fully illustrates it with this example. So, Boy Scout hike. First, he Alex started. He was going to be in the front of the line. Okay, it's the analogy is the manufacturing process. You got it. Uh, doesn't work because he fucking loses herpes in the back. Okay, we're going to put this other kid in front. We're going to put herpes in the middle. I'll be in the back. I'll make sure that nobody dies. Well, the problem is now the other kid is like a mile ahead going to get eaten by bears and herpes is slowing everybody up. So he's like, okay, that's, oh, this is a classic case of dependent events, but where's the statistical fluctuation? Well, then he, he looks and he's like, oh crap, I'm like seven feet behind this, this kid in front of me. I need to hurry to catch up. Hurries to catch up. He does, he goes a little bit too far then and he's too close. And so he's like, oh, I got to back up. And he's like, oh, if, if you were measuring my stride, that would have been a statistical fluctuation. But what's the big deal? So he's thinking on it, he's thinking on it, and they start going up a hill. And he looks, and he said, I'm fi- I find I'm almost stepping on the boy in front of me now. He's looking, and he looks up a, a, a tiny bit ahead, and he realizes, oh, you know who's not good at hills? Herpes. He's fucking fat. No offense. I feel like I had to say it that time. Um, but he's slowing down the whole chain. And then... Alex gets to the top of the hill and he looks and he's like, I can barely see Ron, the line leader. He's like a legit a mile ahead. And so Alex is yelling and yelling and yelling. And finally, like he catches up with Ron at the the front of the line. He's like, I told you to set a moderate pace. And Ron's like, I did, dude. Like you guys are fucking slow. I was going so slow. And that's when Alex begins to understand what's happening ron is setting the pace but every time that that someone moves slower than ron the line lengthens it wouldn't even have to be as obvious as when dave so this kid tripped and fell when dave slowed down but even if one of the boys takes a step that's half an inch shorter than the one that ron took the length of the whole line could be affected okay so stick with me this is where fucking good he says, suppose I walk faster. Can I shorten the length of the line? Well, so, so you're imagining you're in this fucking line. And what he's saying is that the line leader, the person at the front of the line, he's the one that has unlimited upside. He can go the fastest he possibly can. But from link two to a million in the chain, anything that goes a tiny bit even slower than Ron, the head boy, compounds. So... You know, imagine there's a one second delay from uh, boy one to boy two. There's a half a second delay from boy two to boy three. There's a half a second delay from boy three to boy four. You get all the way to boy like 25 and there's like a 57 second delay. And yeah, you can speed it up, but you can never speed up faster than the kid in front of you. He says, I can reduce the gap, but only until I'm bumping up against the boy in front of me and I have to slow down to his rate and it's starting to make sense our hike is a set of dependent events in combination with statistical fluctuations so I've got limits on how fast I can go both my own so like his just body is not a car and the boy in front of me but there is no limit on my ability to slow down what's happening isn't an averaging out of the fluctuations of our various speeds but an accumulation of the fluctuations. So it's like if you're thinking about a uh, uh, like an accident 
on the highway. How many times have you seen there's been an accident and, and traffic is slow for like 30 minutes and you get up to the accident and it's like completely and totally cleared up already on the right side of the road. There's just the police officer there. But what's happening is everybody slows down 10 miles per hour and that compounds and compounds and compounds until all of a sudden like that has that has been 30 minutes of delay. It's an accumulation of slowness because dependency limits the opportunity for higher fluctuations. For Herbie to keep the length of the line from growing, he would have to make up for his own fluctuations plus those of all the kids in front of him. Then I start to wonder what this could mean for my job because yeah, everything is really about Alex. In the plant, we've definitely got both dependent events and statistical fluctuations. And here on the trail, we've got both of them. What if I were to say that this troop of boys is analogous to a manufacturing system? In fact, if you really think about it, the troop does produce a product. It's called walking the trail. I'm the last, so Alex is the last operation. Only after I have walked the trail is the product sold. So imagine you say, hey, 20 boys have to get across this line for you to get one point. You don't get a point until the 20th boy gets across. That's what he's saying. Until everybody gets to camp, you have not walked the trail. Until everybody makes it past a specific point, you've actually not produced the product known as the entire group has passed this point. He says, only after I have walked the trail is the product sold. And that would have to be our throughput. Not the rate at which Ron, the head boy, walks the trail, but the rate at which I do, being the last man. Okay. What about the amount of trail between Ron and me? Okay, so between the front boy and Alex, you know. So the front boy is like a mile ahead. So like that mile of trail, what is that? He's like, well, it has to be inventory. Ron is consuming raw materials. So the trail, the rest of us are walking, is inventory until it passes behind me. Okay. And so you could imagine the analogy though, like, let's say you really, really grossly mismanage this and you have somebody running a marathon at the front as fast as they can and somebody else who's like, I don't know, 900 pounds and they're like the 11th rung of a 20 rung ch chain. You know, the, what he's saying is that the inventory would be the distance between the person who's in first and the person who's in last. And going back to the manufacturing, like having a bunch of excess inventory but not making any sales, not good. And operational expense, well, that's whatever turns inventory into throughput. In our case, would be the energy the boys need to walk. So uh, it's like eating food. If the distance between Ron and me is expanding, it can only mean that inventory is increasing. Throughput is my rate of walking, which is influenced by the fluctuating rates of the others. Inventory is going up, throughput is going down, and operational expense is probably increasing. Fuck, dude, I can't even manage a Boy Scout troop, much less a plant. The same thing is happening. I'm cursed. They stop for lunch. And so Alex is like starting to get that panicky feeling where he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill one of these kids, but not on purpose, but by accident. Fuck, dude. Like, were we lost in the middle of the woods in the dark? One of these kids, like, they just love to die in the dark. I just, this is going to be really bad. And then a thought comes to him, and he's like, wait a second. The weak, what's the weakest link in the chain? Herpes. The fat kid. Herbie. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, okay, herpes. You're, uh, sorry, I'm trying to get better at it. I'm not trying to call you Herb. Uh, Herbie. Yes. I'm not, I'm not ganging up on you or, or bullying you like the other boys. You're the line leader. And everyone's like, but Herbie's so fat. And I was like, well, listen, this is the only way I can think of to not lose one of you guys. Herbie, you're the line leader. So they start off again. But this time it works. Where the first time when he was the line leader, you know, Herpes was going to fucking die in the back. When Ron was the line leader, Ron's a mile away going to get eaten by bears. But when Herbie's the line leader, yeah, it goes slower than it should. But in reality, everybody just kind of like modulates their speed. They could go faster, but they modulate their speed to Herbie's speed. And there's not really that big of an issue. 
Alex even sees a kid who pulls over on the side of the of the trail, holding everybody up, adjusts his pack, puts it back on, and then he's like, oh crap, he walks a little faster to catch up to the boy in front of him. But all of the other kids, they do the same thing, they walk a little bit faster, but it's okay, they're not getting left behind because the pace is being set by Herbie. Nobody's out of breath, everything's going smoothly. What a difference. And then he's like, hey, Herbie, why is your backpack clanking? And Herbie's like, oh, well, because I brought 35 pounds of food and two cast iron skillets. And then he's like, are you serious? Herbie's like, yeah. Like, guys, take this from Herbie. Everyone else is like, okay, that's fine. I'm not even tired. I could have crawled this fast, but it's still faster than it was before. They take Herbie's backpack, and then it's really moving because now Herbie's going way faster than he was before when he when he had this pack. He realizes that after relieving Herbie of his pack, they covered four miles in two hours, which is way faster than they were going before. Herbie was the key to controlling the entire group, and he's like he's feeling that he's on to something, and so. He's pumped, he's happy, his son finally feels like he loves him again, and he comes back, and he realizes, oh dear, I forgot another date with Julie. Crap. He comes home to find a note that basically is just like, the kids are safe, I'm gone. He's like, no, this is so inconvenient. Finally, after a week, he tracks down that his wife is, is living at his parents or her parents it's like one of the most obvious places he would check if he was a detective it takes him a week but hey he's a plant manager not a detective and he's been ruminating on this concept of like i think we learned a lesson when we were hiking what the fuck what the fuck so he calls jonah because he's like i think there's something here and jonah's like really good alex you might not die yet what you figured out was the concept of a bottleneck aka a constraint now alex to save your plan you have to figure out which one of your machines are the herbies then distinguish between the two types of resources in your plant one type is the bottleneck resource the other is not the bottleneck is any resource whose capacity is equal to or less than the demand placed on it and a non-bottleneck resource is any resource whose capacity is greater than the, the, than the demand placed on it. Okay, think about that for a second. Bottleneck is the, the demand placed on it is equal to, think about this, for a bottleneck, it's a resource whose capacity is equal to or less than the demand placed on it. Meaning, you're either trying your absolute hardest on the hike and you're just meeting the demands or it's more than you can do so like when herbie was in the chain you know when he was the 10th out of the 20 boys the demand placed on him was more than he was able to do like he could not keep up with the other boys and a non-bottleneck resource is any resource whose capacity is greater than the than the demand placed on it so Think about when they switched it around and Herbie was the line leader. You know, why did that kid who stopped to fix his backpack and then, you know, did get eight seconds behind, kind of quickly walk to catch up and all the 10 kids behind him, they also quickly walked to catch up. Why did that not mess up the chain? Well, it's because they had way more capacity. Like they were, yeah, they were kind of walking, but like they could have run four times as fast. But because they were limiting the output of the system by the constraint, a.k.a. Herbie, those resources were not the bottleneck resource. And Jonah says, what you need to do is balance the flow of product through the plant with demand from the market. Jonah says, let me ask you, which of the two types of resources determines the effective capacity of the plant? The bottleneck or the non-bottleneck? Like how, if, if the goal is you got to get all the Boy Scouts to the fucking camp at night before they die. What actually determines if you've achieved that goal? If 19 of the kids get there really, really fast and Herbie dies, or if 20 of the kids get there, the bottleneck. It's the kid on the hike last weekend. 
He had the least capacity. He was the one who actually determined how fast the troop as a whole could move. The idea is to make the flow through the bottleneck equal to demand from the market. So you need to figure out a way to make Herbie the bottleneck, make his best equal to what is required to succeed and win the race at the at the uh, below the certain time. And they start trying to find the bottlenecks in the plant. They realize that there are two machines with consistently huge amounts of inventory stacking up in front of them. Okay, that's a clue. Jonah comes to the plants and he says, your bottlenecks are not maintaining a flow sufficient to meet demand and make money. So there's only one thing to do. We have to find more capacity. What you must do is find enough capacity for the bottlenecks to become equal to demand. So for us fucking baboons, that means that the flow required in making samurai swords to run a profitable business is faster than step four can handle. What you need to do is figure out a way to make step four good enough that it can at least run a profitable business. You need to find more capacity for step four, the medical, metaphorical bottleneck. And Alex and his friends are like, but we don't have any more money. What are we going to do? He's like, listen up, bitch. Let's walk around the floor and see. So they walk on the floor and they see that the bottleneck is idle. And Jonah's like, hey there, little guy. I know you're not as smart as me, but why is Herbie taking a nap? They look into it and they realize, oh, well, those workers were on lunch. It's like, okay, dude, whatever is available for the bottleneck, whatever capacity is available, the demand is greater. If you lose one of those hours or even half of it, you've lost it forever. You cannot recover it someplace else in the system. It's like if any other person on that Boy Scout hike got a, had a delay happen to them, they could kind of recover. But Herbie, the slowest, any delay, he's just it's just like compounding death. Your throughput for the entire plant will be lower by whatever amount the bottleneck produces in that time. And that makes an enormously expensive lunch break. And, and this is where, like, I think the principle is super deep. Um, because they say, okay, well, but no, it's not that expensive of a lunch break. I'm, like, we're paying these people $30 an hour. And Jonah's like, okay, bitch, this is my favorite. I'd love to do leading questions now. Um, how many hours a month are there for the bottleneck? And they say 585. It's like, okay, if the bottleneck is idle, the actual cost of the bottleneck is the total expense of the system divided by the problem that the bottleneck's not producing. What does that make? And so they calculate it and it's like $2,735. So, okay, dude. And like fucking, I don't even take that great of notes, but like the punchline here is that the bottleneck is down for an hour and you think like, oh, you know, it's just taking a lunch break. And you think it's, oh, that's 30 bucks an hour. But you're actually losing $2,735 because the entire system, you know, if you're if you're doing batches of Boy Scout troops that have to make it to camp and 20 of them have to make it to camp before it counts, you legitimately cannot check the box that a Boy Scout troop has made it to camp until all the boys have made it. AKA, if one of the boys falls down for an hour and they happen to be Herbie. It's not just the cost of the one boy that fell down, the one machine that's the bottleneck being down. It's the fact that the entire system for that hour that the machine is down, that entire system actually cannot produce anything. And so if you add up the total production of the whole system and divide it by the bottleneck, you get, hey bitch, that lunch break, that lunch break cost $2,735. And so Jonah's like, hey man, we need extra capacity for this bottleneck. And so what we're going to do is first, we're going to make sure that there's no obvious dumb ways that the bottleneck is not being fully utilized. You know, are we taking lunch breaks on the bottleneck? Okay, I, Like, I agree workers should take lunch breaks. However, if you happen to be on the bottleneck, just we have to figure out a different system. Uh, and then the other is he's like, what does the bottleneck make? And they're like, well, it makes this specific part. He's like, okay, are there any other machines that can make that part? And they're like, no. He's like, okay, well, 
what about before we bought that bottleneck machine? How did we make that part? He's like, well, it was these older machines. He's like, okay. But he's like, but they're really, really inefficient. And Jonah's like, yes. Can we get them? They're like, yes. And so they go to this other plant that they'd sold them to. They get these other machines that are really, really inefficient, but they make the same part that Herbie effectively makes. And so it's like, yes, is removing 20 pounds from Herbie's backpack going to make that much of a difference? Like, What is 20 pounds? Not that much. But adding any capacity to the bottleneck is a massive increase. You know, it's like, because the entire system is constrained by the bottleneck, you know, even if that machine is conventionally very inefficient, you're chipping away quickly at that $2,735 of the bottleneck being down because you start to offset it being such a bottleneck. And so that's what the story's walking around where they're just like, he's just realizing all these deep fucking manufacturing life lessons that I believe actually is the way. And so summarizing, like how do we optimize bottlenecks? Well, we make sure the bottleneck's time is not wasted. And so we keep it efficient. You know, if we can, we augment it with other parts. But then he brings up this great example. is like, hey, how are we doing quality control in this? And so uh, if we're sticking with the 10 step samurai sword example, and step four is the bottleneck in this this time. He's like, okay, well, where's quality control? AKA, you don't wanna, you know, you don't wanna wait until it's the final samurai sword before you realize that you made a mistake. You know, like you could have made a mistake on step two. And if you process it all the way through to step 10, then the whole thing is defective as opposed to just a part of it. They're like, well, quality control comes after the bottleneck. So it's step five. And Jonah's like, could you be stupider? Because think about that. Okay. So if you have this this resource that is ma- that every second on the resource is massively important. So important that a lunch break costs $2,735. Every piece that you put into this bottleneck, you want to make sure that you can turn that into throughput. You want to make sure that you can actually sell that piece. And so if you put a piece that's defective, that already was defective, like if you had checked at step three, you would have realized it was defective, but you put it into the bottleneck, that, let's say it takes 20 minutes to make that part. That's the wa- the cost of the wasted part plus one third of 2,700 and whatever dollars for which is the you know important hourly rate of the entire system constrained by Herbie. And so if you move quality control up in front of the bottleneck, then the bottleneck only works on parts that are not defective. You save a bunch of capacity, which is super profitable. So we're still in this, okay, so we got a, we got a bottleneck. What do we do? We got Herbie. Well, we give Herbie steroids. We have him start puberty at 11. But the next part was a little bit counterintuitive. And this is where I had like struggled to explain it to people. And this is also because like, I don't know anything about manufacturing. Okay. But imagine that samurai sword, 10 steps. Let's pretend there's a machine for each step. Okay. After step 10, samurai sword is done. Metaphorical step 11 would be selling it, you know, delivering it to the customer. So you have three main variables. You have person utilization, you have machine utilization, and you have capacity. Okay, so person utilization. You pay somebody an hourly rate. You don't want them to play Xbox the entire time. Utilization would be how many of their hours are they actually working? Machine utilization is how many of the 24 hours in the day is the machine actually working and capacity is how many parts can the machine spit off but when they're walking around the the manufacturing plant they see there's all this inventory on the ground and they realize that you know in the chain 
all the machines are more efficient than the bottleneck and they're running every machine at full capacity with the goal of being maximizing local efficiency so imagine you know you've got uh you've got the the 10 step samurai sword making process step three you're making twenty thousand pieces of metal step four you can process five thousand an hour okay if you just do twenty thousand twenty thousand twenty thousand twenty thousand twenty thousand for ten hours you have two hundred thousand you go to the next step you do five thousand for 10 hours you have 50,000 you have 150,000 pieces stacking up before the bottleneck step and so counterintuitively you don't want to actually have all of your machines working as hard as you possibly can because some of them are just going to create a bunch of excess inventory okay and then the last distinction that he makes is that you could think, you know, you're running a samurai sword company. Is there, like, what is more valuable? A samurai sword that you're manufacturing because somebody has ordered it? Or a samurai sword that you're manufacturing because you want to make sure you have enough inventory on hand? Clearly, because somebody has ordered it. And so, you could, you could think how if you've got all these machines and they're running at full capacity, it would be insane to prioritize a part that was purely for building inventory over something that had been ordered. And even worse, imagine the bottleneck. So the most precious of hours. The bottleneck, imagine it working on a part that is just to have like extra inventory on your obscure samurai sword collection that nobody cares about and delaying an actual order for that. And so they go put a bunch of red and green stickers and they prioritize red based on, you know, first thing being orders and second being how old they are because like he's having a really rough time where, you know, they're they're like having six month delays and everything. But by doing but the the principle here is subordinating every single thing to the bottleneck actually makes the whole system run better and and this is actually like really insane um because the crazy thing happens is that since they're not wasting any time with excess inventory or working on parts that have not been ordered yet even though per unit the bottleneck much less efficient the global efficiency of the plant massively increases because there's they are only working on the right things and in balance. You know, all the other machines are not creating a bunch of excess inventory that is clogging everything up and then making things slower. And especially not excess inventory that's not even tied to throughput, aka not even tied to orders. And so there's like 75 more pages. They do great. They figure it all out. Um, Alex gets promoted. Um, they even figure out that as they get more and more and more efficient, there are actually even other resources that become somewhat capacity constrained. So like for me, okay, I got a bad back, but let's think about deadlifting. Hey, my back is the biggest constraint, okay, but I've really, really, really worked on it. And so I got my, I've got my back strong enough that actually now the constraint with deadlifting is my hips. Like my hips start to really, really fucking hurt. And then I'm just like, I'm old, god damn it. But they have these these other areas where like the back's not the constraint anymore, it appears, but the hips start to hurt. But they do a, this similar process. They offload, they augment capacity of the of the secondary resources, and they figure it out. And so he gets promoted, four of his best friends get promoted, and he he calls them all into this room, you know, after three months. Um He's like, hey guys, how are we going to repeat what we did at the plant? Because we're all now the boss. Like, what are we going to do? And they realize Eli's five-step process for process improvement. And this is like, this is the way, dude. Step one is identify the system's bottlenecks. Okay. So this is the crazy point because it's like, 
there's it's not even the 80 20 principle which is what are the small amount of things that give you the most benefit it's like if you have a system that is dependent on other things the 80 20 principle is so fucking insane where it's like the overused cliche you're only as strong as your weakest link is actually completely true to the point that if you lose one kid you go to jail even if you're managing a thousand kids like you lose one it's a big problem so step one is identify the system's bottlenecks step two decide how to exploit the bottlenecks and so i think this really means like coming up with the plan for how to make the problem less bad so it's like using critical thinking and so you know like in that um manufacturing example okay the bottleneck doesn't get a lunch break now we put quality control before the bottleneck we're only gonna work on orders not just making a bunch of excess inventory all the machines that come before the bottleneck aren't gonna run at full capacity and just destroy the bottleneck with inventory you get the idea so that's step two step three is subordinate everything else to the above decision. So this is super counter counterintuitive, but let's think of deadlifting again. So let's say not my back this time, let's say my grip, okay? Let's say my, my legs are 500 pound deadlift. My uh, lower back is a 500 pound deadlift. My core is a 500, power de- 500 pound deadlift, but my grip is a 350 pound deadlift. What is my deadlift? 350 let's say i say you know what i just gotta i just gotta bust heavier weights okay i just gotta just get stronger and i use straps and i get my deadlift to 600 pounds and then i go to a powerlifting meet but my my grip is still 350 what's my deadlift 350 you know that 600 that's just potential energy and so step three is subordinate everything else to the above decision and so you say i am not going to even train my legs i'm not going to train my core i'm not going to train my back anything but maintenance i'm going to attack the bottlenecks and in the manufacturing example red and green tags you know making sure they only worked on orders that had come through prioritizing things directly rated related to revenue uh that was the right thing to do okay So step four now is elevate the system's bottlenecks. So step one is like, what's the weak link in the chain? Step two is like, come up with a plan. Step three is put everything else on maintenance. Step four is attack your grip. Elevate the system's bottleneck. So you, you like, you do all the improvements. You know, you bring in the old machines, you put quality control beforehand. You, you buy those heavy grippers and you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And then step five is if in a previous step, a bottleneck has been broken, go back to step one. So AKA, and I keep saying AKA, that's right, son. AKA, this is the continuous recursive improvement process that you can use to anything in your life. What are the constraints? How do I need to attack these constraints? Nothing else matters until I get the constraints up. Hammer the fucking constraints. If you broke one of the bottlenecks, take a breath. Maybe there's a new one. But imagine with that deadlift example that you got your deadlift from a three. You got your your, everything else on maintenance grip only. You get your grip to a 600 pound grip in three months. What's your deadlift now? 600. Because you'd built that potential energy. And so... Going from a 350-pound deadlift to a 600-pound deadlift in three months is insanity. But the point is, those types of, like, that actually would have been physically possible in that example because the constraint, the bottleneck, was truly the grip. And so, my praise. But the the crazy point here, and it made me even realize that I should not quit my fucking podcast because I will still be reading these books and I need to burn them into my soul And I found no better way than this here podcast. But the idea that anything you do on the other machines, 
And I think the analogy could be in a system, anything you do that is not correlated to revenue through a bottleneck is a waste of time. It'd be like, it would be better for you to go take a 50 minute shit. So actively shit, then work your hardest on a machine that has more capacity than the bottleneck because you're just creating excess inventory. The bottlenecks can change and they will change. But that five-step process, which he summarized at the end of the book, and I will repeat again, is step one, identify the system's constraint. Step two, decide how to exploit the system's constraint. Step three, subordinate everything else to the above decision. Step four, elevate the system's constraint. And step five, go back and do that shit again is the way. You know, I've been reading this book in the middle of the second to last week of my working year. Stuff has been so insane, but I realized that this is important. It's related in a way it feels like to the 80-20 principle, the, the non-linearity in existence everywhere. This applies to my work. You know, we realize that as we scale our company, the constraint will be human beings delivering the work. We need to do the five steps. When I'm dieting, dude, I just, I realized that the constraint is hunger and diet fatigue. And so I have no problem with lifting and being dedicated to that, even getting enough sleep, you know, but my problem is diet fatigue. So the next time I diet, I need to go slower. I need to lose much less fat per unit, but I will have a better output. I will get lean. I'll have not really any decrease in performance or that, you know, homicidal rage of a thousand suns thing because this principle applies. And so with that, I've risen again. I can't make that joke I was about to, but I will make the second one like a penis, finally getting access to Viagra. So go read the book. It's life changing. That's all I got. Suck it. Until next time. And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.